Welcome to the New Books Network. As we emerge from a period of government-mandated lockdowns and as threats to free speech multiply, we would be wise to re-engage with the work of a seminal thinker on the subjects of liberty, freedom, and non-domination. We can do so most effectively by reading the 2022 book, Completely Free, The Moral and Political Vision of John Stuart Mill by John Peter DiUlio. Mill, 1806 to 1873, for all his influence on fields such as philosophy and political theory, has detractors aplenty. Conservatives consider him lukewarm on religious liberty and even slightly hostile to religion generally, and a proto-hippie in his partiality for ideas about experiments in living. For their part, progressives aren't wild about Mill's emphasis on virtue and personal character. Libertarians distrust Mill's embrace of the state when employment of it, in Mill's view, fosters harmony and a feeling of security among the populace. Crucially for our discussion today, all of Mill's critics seem to agree that much of his thinking is hard to follow and that he will say something in an essay or book that very much conflicts with what he says elsewhere. Diulio's book dissects the many critiques of Mill's social and political thought and argues that Mill believed that society should aim for zero tolerance of arbitrary power and strive for the promotion and preservation of individual freedom. Given recent debates over personal freedom and bodily sovereignty issues, such as mandatory mask wearing and vaccination, and the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade, there could hardly be a more opportune time to drill down into Mill's writings on the various forms that domination can take. For example, domination is infantilization, domination is uncertainty, domination is diminution. Does Mill speak to us today, or is he a relic of the Victorian age and all his earnestness and lofty thinking? Diulio's book is a strong argument for Mill's relevance and continuing appeal. Diulio writes, Mill is dedicated above all to the idea that the chief and most significant solution to any of the ills that we face as human beings is a general cultivation of deep feeling and high aspiration. We learn how Mill managed to free himself of the mechanistic aspects of Benthamite utilitarianism in favor of a richer vision of human happiness that was friendlier to intellectual autonomy and love of the arts, while simultaneously demanding of the individual the pursuit of virtue and good character. Let's hear what John Peter DiUlio has to say about the multifaceted Mr. Mill. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with the author of the 2022 book, Completely Free, The Moral and Political Vision of John Stuart Mill by John John, by John Peter DiLeo. Thank you for joining us today, John. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Hope. I'm excited to talk to you. It was an excellent book, and I it's a, a figure that many of us have heard about and read about, but no, don't know as much about as you do, so I'm glad to talk to you. I'd like to start out with the title of your book. First of all, let's start with the words completely free. Is that a phrase of yours or Mill's or or what? Uh, so you find that phrase in Mill in at least a couple places. You find it in On Liberty uh, in a couple places where, for example, in the first chapter of On Liberty, uh, when Mill was talking about uh, the various basic liberties that individuals must be uh, secured or guaranteed, um, he says that a society in which these these liberties are not protected uh, cannot are not completely protected cannot be completely free. Mm-hmm. So that is those phrase, yeah. Very good. Now we'll get to another word in the title. I'd like to discuss the word moral, and that seems like a word that has fallen out of favor in the last several decades. I know that a hugely influential book in philosophy was the 1993 book Making Men Moral by the noted conservative legal and political philosopher Robert P. George. But do you? But I don't seem to see the word moral in book titles these days. Did you have to think about using the word moral, or does it come naturally to you? Well, it certainly came naturally uh, to me 
in uh, writing this book and thinking about Mill in the sense that Mill is a you know moral theorist, mm. theorist par excellence. I mean, he's uh, thinks very carefully and uh, concretely about the duties and obligations uh, that we have, and has no trouble uh, calling these moral obligations. Uh, but I think that Mill, I mean, maybe we'll get into this as well, uh, draws something of a distinction uh, between morality on the one hand and what we might call, you know, virtue or ethics on the other. Mm. That there are that morality is about the things we must do, that we're compelled to do uh, by our duties or obligations, whereas issues of, of personal virtue, personal excellence, individual flourishing um, involve ethics and considerations of value, but might not be uh, obligatory in the same sense. So I think that uh, what has fallen out of favor, certainly, is that, uh, that, 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 that sense of morality in terms of value and virtue and thinking about what is necessary for uh, individual flourishing, whereas maybe you know what the duties and rights that we have are still uh, referenced with some more frequency. Thank you. In your introduction to the book, you refer to Mill's work as musical and vigorous, and that's kind of I wouldn't think that something that's about ethics and moral would be musical. Could you explain what you mean by that? And did, I find it interesting that you say that his pro that you say musical and vigorous because, as you so clearly say in the book, many of his readers find him very difficult and etiolated <laughs> or dry. I guess. It's yeah. Yeah, I guess. Well, that was uh, I put the word musical in there. Uh, I didn't mean it as a provocation, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I I definitely might have had a slight, you know, one side of my mouth might have been twitched up in a grin when I put <laughs> word in there because Mill is often taken to be uh, a, a kind of a dry uh, writer. He and certainly in his own time and and thereafter, uh, he was considered by many to kind of be a you know, stuffy uh, Victorian intellectual. He was called the saint of rationalism. Uh, he, many of his early contemporaries called him kind of a made man, that he was sort of a, he was kind of like a construction or product of his upbringing and didn't really have any sort of uh, individual animating vigor or energy to himself. But on the contrary, I find Mill's writing uh, to be... To be, to be beautiful, to be, I think, yeah, oh. I think he has a felicitous pen. I mean, I think that his turns of phrase are extraordinarily memorable and, and musical in the sense that his words and phrases and the way he constructs his ideas and presents them, uh, kind of there's a there's a flow and flux to it that I find that's almost like listening to a great symphony that you sit, you really feel. And this, I think, is indicative of this is maybe uh, suggest, you know, suggestive of his uh, early course in being part of a debating society where he had to learn to sort of work a room. And I think his uh, writing is uh, certainly illustrates that. Hmm, I think it was Gladstone who called him the saint of rationalism. Yes. Is that yes. right? That's that's really interesting because he's not exactly known for being um, reader friendly and he's uh, uh, easy, easy to digest himself. Right. But um uh, and and then let's situate. Speaking of Gladstone, let's situate Mill in time in terms of his contemporaries. I was curious. I looked up the year. I wrote, I googled the phrase "famous people born in 1806." And interestingly, Mill was the top of of, of what came up, which surprised me. He 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 outranked Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which I thought was a little unfair to Browning. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> 
and the other one, another one in 1806 was Isabel Kingdom Brunel, the famous engineer. And I just know, I'll go on with this. I just think it's kind of fun to see who, who he was surrounded by. He was six years older than Dickens and two years younger than Disraeli. Uh, could you give us a background on what was happening in British society that Mill was reacting to in his writings? Yeah. So, I mean, Mill, uh, you know, lived through the mid 19th century, which was a period of, uh, you know, rapid unprecedented transition. I mean, mm. it was an era of uh, democratization. Mm. Um, it was an era of industrialization. And it was an era, you know, of a lot of popular agitation uh, for, for, uh, for, for, for the suffrage, for various rights, for the, you know, uh, limitations on government. And Mill really sits at the forefront of that. I mean, his uh, work on liberty, uh, 1859, um, is kind of a seminal, timeless text, I would certainly uh, argue, and I hope I make that case uh, well in the book. Um, but it's also a very kind of timely uh, essay that he wrote. It, it very much is of its time in the sense that he was, uh, Mill takes up the question of the relationship between the individual and government and the extent to which the individual should be uh, preserved uh, from societal and governmental interference. And that becomes a more pressing issue in Mill's time because he also, see, like, you know, this is this this is the influence of Tocqueville upon him, certainly, and Mill came to a lot of these ideas himself as well. He was concerned that in a kind of flat, in the, he was concerned that, that we were moving toward a kind of flattening mass society mm. and that democratization, while a good, I mean, Mill, I think certainly saw uh, democratization as something uh, positive and to be valued, that it had certain uh, unique uh, dangers, it posed certain dangers and risks that had to be accounted for uh, philosophically. And that, you know, obviously, and on liberty, that's the concern of, you know, not, you know, governmental interference, certainly, but also social interference, the censoring eye of the demos being, I, I think I phrased it in the book as Mill was concerned about the individual existing in a kind of reverse panopticon, where the individual sits at the center of the social prison, encircled by the monitoring masses. And so that concern, you know, very is very much at the heart of On Liberty, and I think of a lot of Mill's work. Yeah, how would you connect him to cancel culture in that respect? Because I, I thought of when you when you wrote in the book about the idea that he he was very concerned about public pressure on the individual, and there's certainly a lot of that with the mob mentality and all of that. But at the same time, there's a reverse phenomenon in American society that, in a way, and you also say in the book fascinatingly too that that he that he made the point that if you you could be people could if you were judge. Just calling out someone for for immoral, what you consider immoral behavior, you're 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 considered a blue nose and a prude and a and a oppressive oppressor. How how would you, how would how would Mill regard our own time in that respect? Um, I mean, I think that I think I say in the book that you know that Mill, I think I phrase it as our illiberal tribalism that mm -hmm. uh, that we see on but that we see coming from a lot of different directions that he would regard it with a mixture of horror and resolve. You know, oh, Mill. Interesting. Mill was certainly not a defeatist. I mean, he. I mean, this is interesting too because Mill is often uh, caricatured by certain critics as being kind of a you know rationalistic, uh, kind of progressive thinker. Um, and while he certainly had certain kind of hopes and ideals and 
a vision of a future society and future uh, ways of organizing society that he wanted to move toward. He was very much a rooted, grounded realist. I mean, he's, he it was for him, his moral and political vision, as I say in the subtitle, uh, was just that. He was gazing toward a horizon that we have to walk toward, you know, oftentimes uh, iteratively, uh, you know, taking three steps forward, f- four steps back, five steps forward. But he's, but, but, uh, so he was very much, he had a kind of realistic view. But I mean, I think he would definitely regard the tendency of, you know, in, he would see in cancel culture, uh, the, a kind of domination of the individual uh, by society that that the the the, the fear of uh, speaking one's mind uh, mm. and, and thus being um, in in some way uh, punished by society such that one uh, becomes something of a social pariah uh, that 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 really yokes the mind for Mill and that fear that is exercised over the mind Mill would readily you know, discern and predict, as seems to be the case, that individuals will self-censor and not speak out and and have a, a fear of speaking against any particular uh, reigning orthodoxy, whether left or right. Um, so Mill would, be, Mill would be horrified, I think, by what is called cancel culture, um, but it would not be surprising to him. And it would not be, yeah, he would see it as something that is, you know, utterly uh, predictable when there, when a society is kind of, if a society does not have a strong uh, moral liberal ethos, uh, that's kind of, and if a democratic society lacks a strong moral liberal ethos, that's kind of what predictably results for Mill. It's interesting. I don't like to want to bring in his personal life too often because that you can, I can do that to the to the detriment of his ideas. But to me, it seemed as I was reading and and as you were speaking just now about his own resolve that in his own relations with his future wife Harriet Taylor that he was seeing a woman on the side and people would say to him, uh, "This is really going to damage your reputation. You're treading you're you're, you're treading on, on thin ice here." And he was just adamant. He would just reject that. And as it turned out, it didn't seem to harm him at all. But it was interesting that he just utterly rejected any concern about that. Although he although it's not like he trumpeted it either to the world too. So yeah, he kind of had he kind of lucked yeah. out in that respect. And yeah, I mean, he, I mean, certainly, I mean, it, it cost him in the sense of his personal relationships. I mean, and part of this. Uh, you know, it's, I'm not going to, you know, psychoanalyze Mill necessarily. I'm not, uh, <laughs> perhaps not qualified, but, uh, you know, he was, he was very, uh, as you're right, he was very adamant about the relationship, certainly after uh, Harriet's husband uh, passed and they, and their relation, and, you know, they were seeing each other uh, before that, uh, make, having, uh, you know, having meeting and and you know talking and having what we would refer to as dates you know before <laughs> before her husband died but after he died it became you know a public fact that they were what we would call an item mm-hmm. and uh, his family uh, before her husband died and afterwards his siblings uh, you know questioned him shied him in certain ways and I mean he was he responded you know quite angrily I mean he basically by the time by the end of his life he had basically cut himself off from his immediate family. Uh, he had lost a lot of his like early utilitarian philosophical radical friends like John Roebuck. I mean, he had lost yeah. uh, some certain friends um, and he knew that he was an object of kind of, you know, uh, gossip and, and uh, 
that, that people were kind of speaking about him behind his back. And I think that while he certainly uh, bore up under it and didn't allow it to uh, affect the way he was going to live his life, it definitely, to a certain extent, isolated him uh, mm-hmm. from by the end of his life, he was he his his intellectual and social you know correspondence and interactions, I think, had diminished to a large degree. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, he actually he you know he you know he he spent really the last years of his life just kind of living out his life writing. Um, he's you know he spent some time in Parliament, but his really his only sort of his 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 contact was with his stepdaughter uh, Helen, and um, that was basically kind of the main. Uh, you know, uh, relationship and consolation of his later life. Well, I should make clear that he said there was nothing improper about his seeing her. I mean, in terms of intimate intimacy, yeah. but he, but the, he, that, yeah, so he, I, the, I shouldn't the, accuse him of being an adulterer because he doesn't seem right. Like right. He make, he makes very clear in the autobiography that the relationship was platonic. Hmm. Um, yeah. But but speaking of him of him bridling against societal um, pressures, another fascinating thing in your book was that. He 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 did not go to so like so many of his contemporaries. Most of his intellectual well, not most of them, but many of his intellectual interlocutors were Oxford and Cambridge men. Whereas because of the fact that he was not a member of the Church of England and for religious tests, he was not allowed to go to Oxford or Cambridge or any university except attending lectures at the University of London, I believe, and. And that could you talk about the fact that do you think that benefited him or or did it isolate him further socially because he didn't have a cohort of young male friends that he might have had at college and yeah I mean he goes into this you know in his autobiography and in you know there are great biographies of Mill as well uh, you know uh, just uh, Richard Reeves biography Victorian Firebrand is just fantastic and, and talking about Mill's early life on this front um, I mean Mill it, it's it was interesting Mill you know started out. Uh, very much uh, isolated by his father mm. from society. <laughs> his, his, uh, his, as is you know, well known and kind of uh, among people who you know read and study about you know Mill in the nineteenth century, he was a his education was a it was an experiment basically, kind of a rigorous uh, experiment which the twentieth century philosopher Isaiah Berlin called an appalling success. <laughs> That's you know, he's kind of poster boy for homeschooling, I would say. At this right. Point. I mean, so so when John Stuart Mill was born, his father, James Mill, who, of course, was very close to Jeremy Bentham, one of the kind of the leading philosophical radicals of the time, uh, wrote to his friend who had just had a son as well. And he wrote, he said to his friend, uh, well, you know, let's have a, you know, well-disputed contest uh, to see, you know, uh, who can educate their son and and uh, more effectively. And then in 20 years time, we'll you know, compare our uh, we'll, 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 we'll compare our charges and see who and see who did the better job. Uh, and of course, you know this is this is unfair if you imagine that John Stuart Mill may have had a uh, you know natural reservoir of ability and intelligence that is yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> that, that far outstrips the the, the regular person. Even um, his photographs look like this walking brain. Oh know. yeah, well that's what he was. You know, and and um, you know he. He even says though, and this is kind of interesting. He says in his autobiography uh, that when so he you know he went through this rigorous education under the homeschooling of his father James Mill. You know he was you know reading Greek and Latin by the time he was you know six or seven. He was you know had devoured. He was more well read at the age of ten than most of us, any three of us, are in our entire <laughs> life. And uh, when he first started entering society and kind of you know taking trips and he visited 
uh, you know, he, 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 he attended certain lectures and visited Bentham in France and did other things. And his father walking through Hyde Park kind of told him and Milton Mill claims not to have even known this, that his father explained that uh, because you have a father that took the time and trouble uh, you know, to educate you properly, uh, you're going to find you have uh, abilities and you know things that most people, even your seniors and elders, you know, cannot do and do not know. And uh, and Mill was, you know, ostensibly surprised by this. And, <laughs> but he, he says, he says uh, in his autobiography, he says, uh, you know, and, and this, I do not believe this, you know, redounded to my, this was, this was not a credit to me uh, because, you know, first of all, it was only because I, my father took the time and trouble, but also um, that this, this is, this is, this would be possible for anyone, because if I had been, you know, very gifted with, you know, natural abilities or intelligence, uh, I, you know, then that might explain uh, why I was able to go through this and come out the other side. But indeed, I am, I am lower, uh, I am lower than the average in these regards, which seems to be a, uh, something of a false modesty, because actually there's a letter that, uh, Bentham, I believe, wrote to his brother, I believe, where he said, where, when Mill was visiting him during a summer, I believe, uh, Jeremy Bentham wrote to his brother, uh, this, the, the young male. To, to, to Bentham's brother or to Mill's brother? To Bentham's brother. Oh, so okay. I think Samuel Bentham, I believe, was his name. And Jeremy was writing to his brother about, you know, the young John Mill who was staying with him. And he mm -hmm. said that the young Mill has the pride of Lucifer. Oh, <laughs> so, And that was Mill as a young man. Mm -hmm. uh, but as Mill grew up, I mean, this was this was really this was really kind of one of the um, aspects of Mill's life that was most that, that comes across very clearly in his, in his biograph in you know biographies of him and in his own autobiographical writings that you know a, a great part of his development into his early adulthood uh, was finally meet, you know meeting people and making social connections mm -hmm. and you know finally and and you know developing along those lines. And the people he met and the friends he made, you know, had, you know, tremendous influence and impact upon uh, his own thinking. And so it was, you know, he, he was isolated very early on, but throughout the rest of his life, um, you know, for the most part, kept up a very rich uh, social and intellectual uh, life and correspondence. I mean, he was, he, I think he describes at one point, you know, he'd be He'd be walking to Parliament down the street, and he'd run into three or four friends along the way, and they'd fall into conversation, and then you know they'd depart down a side street as he kept making his way, uh, uh, you know, to, to Big Ben. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think so. Mill certainly was isolated early on. I think he was relatively isolated by the end of his life, but I mean, his life was you know full of you know it's, it's a who's who of you know nineteenth yeah. century intellectuals. And, and many of those relationships, you know, were extraordinarily impactful upon Mill uh, and probably, you know, vice versa. Yeah, you refer in the book to his life as being action packed, which I thought was kind of interesting because I always thought of him as secluded at the East India office and in his study. But but yeah, if you're a member of parliament, presumably you are pretty active and involved with other people, although he did he did he did have a haughty, a rather haughty view of, of his position. In parliament, he, for example, he he wouldn't let people he wouldn't contribute to his own campaign. He wouldn't he wouldn't he didn't he had to be dragged into standing for parliament. He wouldn't address 
public meetings, which is a little bit of a strange, considering his view of social sociality and also the democracy. He was a very aloof member of parliament. He basically had, I have these ideas and I will be in parliament if you want me to be, but I'm not going to glad hand. I'm not going right. to be Johnny, you know, happy Johnny kind of thing. But he, he didn't want to be a politician, I think, mm -hmm. is the, the bottom line. Yeah. He wanted to be a philosopher and he wanted to, you know, he wanted there to be a, a, a true philosopher in parliament. Mm -hmm. um, I think is kind of the bottom. But he was, interestingly, I mean, he was a, uh, when speaking to the public, I mean, he was he, extraordinarily, I think he had an extraordinary uh, integrity um, in dealing with and talking to the public. There's a famous story of him uh, speak. He had at some point written earlier in his life uh, that, you know, the working class, uh, that, 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 that they have a tendency toward kind of, you know, lying and deceit and laziness. He had, you know, he, he, he wrote this earlier in his life. Um, whether that's a view he maintained is uh, another question. But he was speaking to a group of uh, kind of you know the working class, and they they asked him, you know, they held this up and said, mm -hmm. "Did you write this?" And he he responded very casually, "Yes, I did." And they gave him a standing ovation <laughs> because they they you know were so used uh, to you know uh, people sort of you know uh, you know deceiving them and lying to them and you know trying to manipulate them. So the fact that he told the truth and was honest uh, was very <laughs> impressive to them. They knew they knew they could trust him at least to be to have that kind of integrity. Well, given his, you mentioned Jeremy Bentham, and I it, it should be made clear that in your book. In fact, probably the first third of the book, or at least the first, maybe the first quarter of it, I would say, is is devoted to thrashing out his 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 utilitarian beliefs, his relationship with Bentham, and the very minute and discerning difference, uh, fascinating study that you make in in great detail about where his where he diverged and where he where he agreed with Bentham. And one thing that was fascinating too is that. You talk about his his nervous famous nervous breakdown in, at the age of twenty in eighteen twenty six, and you 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 posit though there's uh, um, maybe tentatively that it was because he realized that he was a greater mind and a greater thinker and than Bentham was, and that was kind of a shock because he'd been taught or demanded by demanded of by his father that you will basically worship this man and you will carry on with the utilitarian project and could you talk about what what was going on there i don't know you want to do psycho psychodramas but right, no well i mean uh so that explanation about uh realizing that uh, i think it was uh, who was it um I, I i believe it was elijah milligram who wrote um about Mill, that that part of the explanation that he speculates that part of the explanation for Mill's breakdown uh, was realizing what uh, Milgram calls the vis-a-vis uh, -vis Mill that Mill what Mill viewed as the low intellectual quality of Bentham's thought and writing. Mm. Um, so I I throw that in there in the book as kind of when I'm uh, explaining one of the differences between uh, Mill and Bentham on the issue of uh, having a that where that where Bentham, I make the point that Bentham, uh, that Bentham was Bentham's philosophy was uh, to a certain it was to a certain extent uh, kind of cramped by the fact that he didn't take other intellectual influences seriously and didn't take other philosophers uh, seriously mm. and criticize him on that front and that so I make the point that 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 may have even been part of Mill's. Uh, uh, reaction to Bentham at the age of 20 in 1826. Uh, but I think the main uh, reason for Mill's breakdown in 1826 was that he 
recognized that what he called the, the you know, his internal culture uh, was entirely vacant and lacking, that he realized he had no desire for uh, the ends and goals and ideals that he had been up to that point in his life uh, pursuing quite vigorously. So you know, he mm. was he was raised to be uh, this, you know, uh, you know, shining, uh, you know, warrior for the philosophical radicals, the utilitarians and pursuing, you know, legal social uh, reform along those lines, you know, uh, in the interest of pursuing you know, universal, you know, happiness for all persons. <laughs> the thinking and, machine. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and uh, so what he realized at age 20, part of when he, you know, he posed himself a question, he says at age 20, and this is what he says in his autobiography, that he asked himself if all the objects and ideals that you've been pursuing throughout your life were suddenly realized, uh, would this be a great happiness to you? And he said this, this, you know, answer just, you know, welled up within him a decided no. And at that moment, he said the, you know, basically the floor fell out beneath him and, and that his, the whole, his entire life no longer made sense to him. And he was kind of submerged into a deep depression um, that, that lasted for a, a good long while. And he, he even, he insinuates at one point that he was close to, you know, self-harm or suicide. Mm. Um, and this is often, the thing is, this is often interpreted by, by uh, Mill scholars to be kind of the, 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 the origin of Mill's break with Benthamism, where Mill suddenly realized that he did, not, uh, he did not endorse or agree with Bentham's philosophy. But I don't actually think that's the case. I think indeed what Mill again was realizing here was that he had no desire for these ends, the internal culture uh, that basically allows us to see, to, to, to observe and experience the, the objects, ends, activities, and goods we pursue with, with a sort of, you know, pleasure that, that propels us toward them, you know, taking, you know, looking at a potential good activity and object, you know, thinking of it with a certain, with a certain pleasure, you know, thinking of the, the idea of it, seeing the idea of it as pleasant, uh, because we have built up because we have a strong internal life that allows us uh, to do that, uh, that was entirely lacking in Mill because he believed that he basically had this emotionally barren uh, upbringing that where his entire where he was just kind of this this walking brain, as you said, and did hadn't developed his emotions, his feelings, uh, his his sentiments, all those things that that make not only uh, uh, life uh, possible and the development of life possible, but indeed worth living. And yeah, so you he, make the, you make the point in the book too that he, as you say inner culture that that his salvation was reading poetry in Wordsworth. And right. So, fascinating. Right. So he he ba basically he says that uh, it was through the discovery of romantic poetry, uh, particularly Wordsworth, where he uh, started to basically uh, engage in the engage in a kind of self remedial education that had been lacking. Uh, in his early life, um, that he developed feelings, emotions, sentiments, and started building up a much richer, uh, more complex, uh, deeper, more nuanced uh, way of thinking and feeling and seeing that had been absent uh, before. Because his father, you know, the, the utilitarians in general early on, but certainly his father had a very low view of poetry. He basically considered it to be a waste of time. And, you know, Jeremy Bentham said that poetry is, you know, prose where the lines fall short of the end of the page. Yeah. <laughs> that was basically his, his view of what the, poetry offered. And so that 
was basically absent. That that kind of you know the, the uh, education and you know poetry, music, all you know everything that cultivates the feelings and sentiments was largely absent from Mill's early life. Yeah, when you talk about and the when you use that phrase that his writing is musical, when he talks about the cultural the cultural inner life is is he definitely was quite moving and and making clear that he wanted everyone to have a deep cultural rich intellectual life and i i was curious i i wanted to know what his pastimes were so i looked up and apparently he was a passable pianist and an amateur botanist so that was kind of interesting about he was very very much self-cultivation but that was very victorian it was he he wasn't necessarily unusual in that was he um i mean most no. Victorians were were, were well-rounded, at least the wealthy were. But yeah, no, he. I mean, he is very much, you know, I think a a a man of the a man of his uh, time and station in that way. I mean, he. I think the great love of his life, you know, certainly, uh, you know, uh, botany was one of his pastimes. You know, m- music, of course, but I mean, he just loved nature. He loved natural scenery. He loved going into the country, and you know, taking. He would take, you know walk for you know 10 20 miles a day sometimes uh when he was out in the country and just loved breathing in that and and he he early on when he was visiting the country early on in his uh life when he started to develop you know to start start developing uh that internal life that uh had been denied to him early on he 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 regarded uh, the countryside and you know nature is where the, you know the, the soul can breathe deeply and freely. That the mind expands in those circumstances. Um, He's so channeling, think, channeling Wordsworth again. So mm-hmm, absolutely, abs- absolutely. And it's actually interesting that he, uh, you know, he, he his love and passion for words it was so personal for him mm-hmm. that he uh, he in his debating society. Uh, he debated his friend John Roebuck on the relative um, uh, merits of Wordsworth and Byron. And basically, Roebuck, when he was speaking on on behalf of Byron and in opposition to Wordsworth, was reading passages of Wordsworth and, you know, dismissing them with a scoff, you know, trivializing it, basically, you know, uh, treating it as kind of sentimental drivel. (laughs) And Mill was, and Mill never, like barely ever spoke about his personal life uh, in these debates, but he was so, he was so kind of, you know, hurt and threatened by what his friend Roebuck was saying. And he, he, he spoke very delicately about how Wordsworth had helped him through a, a certain period in, of his life where, you know, every day felt like a kind of drudgery or something of that nature where Mill felt compelled to, you know, speak to speak of Wordsworth's importance to him and, and, and uh, because it was it was it meant so much to him. And now as Mill went, as Mill continued throughout his life, uh, Wordsworth, while he, I think, always re- retained a kind of admiration for Wordsworth, he uh, re- fell relatively in Mill's estimation uh, in re- in relation to other poets, I think by the end of Mill's life, he regarded poets like Shelley and Coleridge and Tennyson as being his preferred poets. But you know, Wordsworth was certainly you know his first love and a kind of turning point in his. Well, life. I think I think Wordsworth's reputation did fall in his own lifetime because his poetry, by some standards, was not as as passionate. I don't know if it was any less good. That's debatable. But it was certainly, and he became more conservative and maybe. Maybe Mill didn't go for that aspect of him. Well, it was actually interesting because Mill um, met Wordsworth at a certain point, <laughs> and he 
he came back to his, I forget which friend he was talking to, um, but he, 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 he was like, de- he was delighted and kind of like he was in a state of kind of, you know, you know agitated euphoria having you know, met one of his heroes. And he, he, said, he said he spoke about how, um, and this is kind of a, a point in Mill's life where, you know, all these other influences were rushing in upon him, which made his early kind of course and, you know, utilitarianism seem very kind of, you know, you know dry and negative in comparison. So he talks about how, you know, uh, even though Wordsworth is kind of like, you know, this 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 conservative uh, individual, that my differences with him are all ones of kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, prudence and practice, whereas my differences with the, with the utilitarians are ones of principle. Hmm. You know, so he actually, interestingly, and uh, this is again er, early on, so he may not have maintained that view throughout his life, but uh, early on, he he not only fell in love with Wordsworth's poetry, but Wordsworth's whole kind of, you know, uh, his vision sort of resonated with Mill to a large, mm. to a, a large extent at that point. That's interesting. I, I love, I love the fact that the poet's name was Wordsworth. That's almost per, too perfect a, a surname <laughs> for a poet. But you mentioned John Roebuck. Um, you don't mention him so much in the book. Is, there, is that because he was, I mean, well, you mentioned a, a little bit about him, that there was a break, but you didn't go into much detail. Was that, is he a significant influence on, on Mill? Or, and he's kind oh. of a forgotten figure. I don't think most people know about John Roebuck. Yeah, I mean, so, so uh, I mean, yeah, Roebuck is, is, you know, for those who pay attention, uh, you know, who, who, know, who know a lot, I guess, about uh, the ni- uh, 19th century British life, you know, he would be, you know, remembered to, to, to a certain extent. Um, but I guess I don't mention him as much in the book, uh, just because I, I didn't want to bring in Mill's biography more than I had to. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to focus, you know, on the text and kind of my my mindset was like, if if I was like on a deserted island and these books, you know, if I had never heard of Mill and these his books washed up on the shore, you know, what would I make of them? And that's kind of the mindset that I went into it with. Um, of course, I you know, referred to obviously Mill's you know intellectual background, his his differences with Bentham, and referred to his autobiography. Uh, it referred to his biography uh, when and when I thought it w- could help to uh, you know further elucidate or illustrate or cast shed light upon um, his philosophy. But I guess if it wasn't necessary to refer you know, to his to his own personal life, I, I tended not to. Well, I promise in the rest of the interview, I'm looking at my questions in my hand, and most of them are about his ideas rather than his his okay. life. So, so, so I will I will get now into the abstruseness part of of his life. Um, on your reading of Mill, how is and you talk about his own intellectual influence and his greater reading than Bentham? How would you say that Mill is like Aristotle and unlike Bentham? And how is Mill unlike how like Bentham and unlike Aristotle? Mm, yeah, excellent. Um... So, so I guess through, throughout the book, what I tend to do, certainly, I think throughout the book, but certainly through the first couple chapters and even into the third chapter, is kind of use Bentham as a foil for Mill, that like where Mill goes can be defined in relation to how he criticized and broke away from Bentham. So, so for example, um, in Mill's value theory, so this is kind of the, you know, sort of the, uh, the, you know where it all begins for Mill. That the the, the the first principal question of his practical philosophy is, you know, what is intrinsically valuable. You know, what is the good. You know, what is the summum bonum, the greatest or highest good. Uh, so for Bentham, answers that question as pleasure. 
right? So that that's that agreeable feelings or sensations, agreeable mental states, one might say, um, is kind of the you know the the the, you know, the alpha and the omega of life. It's the raison d'être of life. It's it's the only thing of intrinsic value. All other things are means to pleasure, and that pleasure um, is to be evaluated or measured purely quantitatively. So things like the intensity of the pleasure, the duration of the pleasure, uh, that having more pleasure rather than less in a quantitative sense is what happiness uh, is all about. So if, this, if, the, if the ultimate good, if what we're all seeking is happiness, happiness is pleasure, and pleasure is to be measured uh, quantitatively. So as most people might know, and many people might know, uh, Mill first you know, dis disagrees with this in the sense that he introduces a qualitative dimension to pleasure. So he says that pleasure is not merely to be measured uh, quantitatively, it's also to be measured qualitatively in, in terms of the kind of pleasure it is, that there are higher pleasures and lower pleasures, mm. and that higher pleasures, you know, are of the, uh, you know, mental variety or of the human variety or appeal to our higher faculties, uh, whereas the lower pleasures are, uh, can, can be relegated to being about, you know, mere sensation, kind of a, a mere sensuality. Um, now, the, the trouble this causes for a mill, of course, philosophically, and you know, you can't you can't pick up a book on Mill's uh, utilitarianism without running into some version of this of this issue or question. You know, how can Mill introduce a qualitative dimension to pleasure without giving up, uh, you know, pleasure as the end of life or what is called hedonism uh, altogether? Isn't it? You know, what makes one pleasure higher than another? if it's not either it being more pleasurable in a quantitative sense or having some kind of quality feature attribute nature to it uh, that makes it you know, higher or better than pleasure, that he's appealing to some standard that cannot be reduced to a sort of hedonism. Uh, now I argue in the book that you know, qualitative hedonism I don't think is conceptually incoherent in the way a lot of Mill's critics uh, want it to be, but that nonetheless Mill does indeed uh, break away from hedonism, and that Mill's that Mill's introduction of quality cannot be reconciled with a hedonistic view. That he that he does indeed uh, uh, move away from uh, Bentham's hedonism. But then the question, of course, then becomes: uh, so what sense are we to make of Mill referring? So he does refer in chapter two of utilitarianism uh, to pleasure as the end of life. Right. So if he introduce if he accepts pleasure as the end of life, as the kind of the uh, as kind of the standard of happiness, and if he introduces this qualitative dimension that can't be reconciled with hedonism, uh, what are we to make of this? Is his declaring pleasure to be the end of life uh, incompatible with what he argues, or is there some kind of deeper uh, reconciliation we can come to? And I think what he's doing, and I, this is kind of the argument. I make in the and uh, the latter part of chapter one of the book, what he's do. I think what he's drawing upon is the notion that, ple that pleasure is not extrinsic to the good life. It's essential to the good life, but it's kind of a byproduct of pursuing or realizing the good. And pleasure, in order for something to contribute to one's happiness, pleasure has to supervene upon the good or activity that one is pursuing or engaged in. Such that, you know, I do something for its own sake, you know, taking a walk, going to the opera, playing chess, and these goods and activities 
can be intrinsically valuable and intrinsically worthy in the sense that they appeal to and engage our higher faculties um, in activities that kind of have a certain you know, quality or feature or attribute that make them uh, desirable. Um, but that doesn't contribute to the good life for Mill. And it's not just engaging in those activities themselves. We have to you know, derive pleasure from that pursuit or from those goods and activities that, that they have to be pleasing to us. So the reason that milk, I think, can indeed coherently claim pleasure to be the end of life is that the goods and activities that are going to appeal to different individuals are going to be different. And of course, this is getting into, you know, on liberty and his theory of individuality, that if the goods and if pleasure needs to supervene upon the good, but if the goods that appeal to different individuals are going to be different, then indeed we can talk about you know pleasure as being sort of the you know that that's kind of that that's sort of you know that's the sign or signal right that for a particular individual that they're realizing their particular uh, you know their particular happiness. Uh, because they're not engaging a good or activity that appeals to this or that, some other individual, they're engaging in a good or activity that appeals to them, and thus they derive pleasure from it, and thus they uh, can live happily. And that's a very, I think that's a, you know, Mill takes that notion of pleasure being intrinsic to the good life, but being what supervenes upon the good. So pleasure is ultimate, it's essential, but it is not itself uh, what the good is. And the good is the activity of the higher faculties in accordance with the higher pleasures, and pl and pleasure has to supervene upon that activity for happiness to be realized. Well, spe speaking of the ultimate good and virtue, and er we, we, we discussed Aristotle, can we now discuss the other big A, which is Aquinas? Does he, did, is there any evidence that Mill read Aquinas at all, or and and was he influenced? He, I think there's a small, a slight reference in your book to natural law. How did 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 Mill have any any relation to natural law thinking? He's he's cited by Robert P. George occasionally in his public speaking, but mostly about um, Mill's ideas on liberty rather and free speech rather than philosophy. Is there is there a connection at all between Mill and how was he regarded by conservatives, other natural law thinkers and and other conservatives? Right. Well, I, so to get to your first question, I don't recall there being any place, I don't recall Mill referring uh, to Aquinas in any kind of uh, constructive way where, you know, I, I, I'm not sure there's any evidence that Aquinas was an influence upon Mill or that Mill read Aquinas very closely. I could be wrong about that. I just, I just, I don't recall uh, that. But I think there, you know, but in that Aristotelian Kind of Thomistic tradition of kind of the the good life uh, being that you know that in both of those cases right that that pleasure supervenes upon the good for both Aristotle and Aquinas there is uh, a kind of resonance there. Um, the other question about how conservatives you know relate to Mill or regard Mill, I think the key distinction to make is that there are the reasons that conservatives typically think or imagine they have uh, for taking issue with Mill um, and the reasons that they you know, actually have or ought to have <laughs> for taking uh, issue with Mill. Uh, so typically, right, if you look at kind of conservative critiques of Mill, um, you know, we can go down the line that, you know, his value theory begins with hedonism 
but you know and ends up with a kind of you know that's the, the start of his value theory and it kind of the and it, it, it this the summit of it is a kind of you know uh, self-aggrandizing you know anti-social kind of atomistic individualism mm. uh so in his you know moral theory that he was you know while again modified and different from bentham in various ways he was a, you know, a consequentialist he was a, a benthamite consequentialist uh, in his liberal theory with the harm principle that he's, you know, drawing the strict dichotomy between the individual and societies, offering us a, you know, libertarian radical principle of non-interference. Uh, so I, I, and I then he also, I was just going to say that I did find it confusing as a reader to under not not of your book, but of Mill's thinking that he would talk about the the individual being paramount, individual liberty, but also he said, and if you're free. You will have more time to make society better, and that you're. It's so. Could you could could you explain the to to listeners the the seeming con, con, well? You, I interrupted you. You were doing it actually, but the contra the contradictory the contradiction between sociality and the individual is the center. Right. So what I was so what I was uh saying there. So what I was uh leading up to was that you know I'm those. Oh, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um. All those reasons, all those reasons I just listed for conservatives taking issue with Mill, or reasons they might think or imagine they have, but I don't think that those criticisms I don't think are true to Mill, um, even remotely. Um, I, I don't think he was a hedonist. Um, I don't think he gives us a kind of self-aggrandizing, atomistic, antisocial individualism. Uh, I don't think he was a Benthamite or even really a consequentialist. I don't think the harm principle is kind of a principle of radical non-interference. So those are all, I think Mill can be kind of, you know, can, uh, can be uh, acquitted on all, all of those charges. But there are other reasons we might get into that uh, conservatives might take issue with Mill. But to get to the question uh, you just asked about individuality and sociality. So I think for Mill, right, I think this is his rejection of psychological egoism, which he's often been accused of being a psychological egoist or a psychological hedonist. Um, in fact, I think Mill places um, strong kind of, you know, co-equal emphasis upon individuality and sociality as being uh, part and parcel of of the good life and being and being and both we have to both develop the individual and social aspects of our nature in order to be a fully developed you know well-rounded uh happy person that we have to that it's not just about you know he defines in you know, one of the again this uh, these the, the critiques that come of mill often come because you know, people are you know, mill sounds one way in a certain set in a certain setting or a certain text because he's responding to a particular problem or answering a particular question or speaking to a particular concept like individuality and you know leaving the other half out even though he's not contradicting it or devaluing it so for example and on liberty he says you know the only freedom that deserves the name is pursuing our own good in our own way now that sounds like a very kind of you know self-referential individualistic statement but that to mill it, mill there is just defining you know the individual side uh, of of happiness but we can't but part of uh but pursuing our own good in our own way ought to include does include all of the you know social values and social desires we ought to have and also excludes uh, harm and harming others and harming society, uh, which I, as I as I read that in uh, chapter three of my book, for male is is in the most basic sense 
uh, harm for male is a kind of you know injustice that we can't act unjustly toward uh, others. Um, so, but the reasons I, I think the I think the reason why a I think if a conservative was going to take issue with Mill, I think the you know the place to do it, the place where you're going to have the most traction, and where you can really press Mill, is on his refusal uh, to consider. You know, he he out of hand rejects you know the possibility of you know morals legislation, morals laws. Mm. Um, so what's interesting about Mill and what I find so fascinating about him is that he really is working out of what Isaiah Berlin referred to as, you know, the central tradition of Western thought, that, that political society exists properly and naturally, uh, not merely for, you know, life or for guaranteeing rights or for, you know, preventing people from bumping into one another and violating one another's uh, uh, you know, life, liberty, or property, as Locke would have it, but indeed, ultimately, and thus, in some sense, some teleological sense, primarily for the sake of the good life, that institutions, laws, society uh, ought to be organized uh, principally for the sake of individual and social flourishing, and that is interesting because what Mill then does, right? So, you know, Mill then tries to build a kind of strident, thoroughgoing. Uh, liberal view of society uh, out of that tradition of thinking that he's a liberal not because of any appeal to abstract right, not because of any appeal to the to a social contract, uh, not by any appeal to uh, you know kind of um, you know uh, you know you know reason or anything like that. It's it's that he it, that his liberalism, he believes, he's constructing a liberalism that he believes is vital to the flourishing of the individual and society. And what's so what's interesting there and where you can press Mill is, you know, he, when he, when you, when you, when he gets to uh, arguing in On Liberty that individuals ought not be interfered with uh, for, you know, for, for any reason other than harm, that you can't interfere with them, you know, paternalistically, uh, simply because you believe they're acting in a uh, in a in a vicious or low debased uh, fashion, or they're wasting their lives, or they're dissipating, or they're not you know uh, you know per, per, they're not pursuing the right goods or the right ends. They're not living well. Yeah, at this, at this point, I just I wanted to say I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're doing such a marvelous job in the book of quoting just exactly the right people or obviously but but in the right the, the the most amusing or the most telling ways and you have this wonderful passage about what you were just saying about um the individual's right and that we shouldn't interfere and you had you quote james fitz james Stephen uh, addressing a pimp in in mill's voice and it's really funny it's just i wanted to I, I, if i had time i would read the whole thing but yeah. he just says this kind of voice of of being mill talking to the pimp about i don't really want to interfere with your lifestyle and it's it's very admirable in its own way but maybe you might want to consider some other some some alternative path to your conduct but i don't want to i don't want to push that on you and it's, it's just it's just very rollicking and funny and yeah and i mean can see uh, uh, sorry let's go on no i was just gonna say i would wonder what your reaction and did you laugh as you were writing that uh, oh yeah no i i included that whole passage because i just found it so amusing and i say uh after quoting that passage you know that if uh if you know steven is 
you know, if Stephen is Aristophanes here, you know, clearly yeah. Socrates, you know, from Aristophanes, the clouds, like he's just, he's mocking him scathingly and relentlessly, but also very humorously for kind of his impossibly circumspect attitude toward all so-called, you know, experiments in living. Um, and that's, you know, and that's, you know, you know, Stephen, you know, kind of, you know, hits the, hits a nail on the head there in a sense where, you know, there's, you know, that, you know, is, you know, whether or not Mill there is making some kind of category error between, you know, intellectual virtue on the one hand and moral virtue on the other. I mean, Mill clearly believes, as any Aristotelian would, that uh, the development of uh, virtue is all about you have to be habituated and educated and cultivated properly in order to lead lead a good life mm. and that knowing what the good is you know it's you know he's he's uh you know knowing what the good is is not sufficient if you don't have the kind of uh uh, uh you know proper moral makeup in order to uh in order to exercise your uh, faculties properly in accordance with the good and so there's it's kind of like you know what's in what sense will persuasion or exhortation uh be at all efficacious um with people who don't who don't ha who don't have the kind of virtues and excellencies that a person needs to have in order to act well and to act well with pleasure. And I think you know Mill. Of course, there's that point you know on liberty, maybe the most controversial uh, passage uh, in the in his essay and perhaps in his entire corpus, where he says that of course you know he says oh of course my my doctrine of liberty, this harm principle that's that, that's that the individual should only be interfered with when they're acting harmfully, or as I would interpret that unjustly, uh, this does not apply to people in the immaturity of their faculties, he says. It does not apply to what he calls, you know, children or barbarians. Mm. Now, so, and that kind of gets to the fact that, of course, children, you know, they need to be cultivated, they need to be educated, they need to be brought up in a certain way in order to exercise their higher faculties um, in accordance with the higher pleasures. But the question then arises, and it's a it's an interesting, and this is where I again I was kind of getting to this, where a conservative could really, I think, press Mill on this point and have some traction. Um, that, you know, what about if we're in, if we're just you know positing that theoretically, if that's true, that let's just follow Mill for the sake of argument that his doctrine of liberty does not apply to individuals in the immaturity of their faculties. Okay, well, that then applies, as he says, to, you know, barbarians, which, you know, ostensibly Mill would say, you know, exist in, you know, lower states of society, certainly not, you know, certainly not Britain, but, you know, as he was, but other, other places out there, you know, uh, and this, of course, applies to children, who exist in lower and higher states of society, right? So children are, if you have a society, you're gonna have children, but he doesn't really, but what about those you know, barbaric or childlike adults that exist in a higher state of society? What about those individuals, those, 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 those individuals who have obtained you know, the age of reason, but who are still in the immaturity of their faculties? This is, you know, whatever we wanna say about that, you know, whatever arguments, you know, outside of Mill we want to make about that, for Mill, theoretically, this is a really interesting issue because his basic response to this, right, is like, well, if he, if he says in On Liberty, if society allows, you know, individuals to grow up mere children, uh, society only has itself to blame. Well, okay, we might concede that society only has itself to blame, but does that bar society from remedying its errors? Does it bar an entirely 
new generation from from uh, fr from from rectifying uh, past injuries, wrongs, or or neglect. And and is it society as a whole, or what if someone just comes from had you know a bad early life, uh, has had bad influences? It's not society as a whole that is to blame necessarily, but only particular parts or aspects of society. So why can't other why can't other uh, parts of society uh, you know st step in uh, when the individual is clearly you know uh, dissipating or clearly acting in a you know acting in a, uh, a a vicious or low debased manner and and that's theoretically for mill is a real question and he kind of i mean there's a sense in which mill just like doesn't want to have it like he just doesn't he he wants to kind of shove that issue aside and 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 wants to push it into the wants to push it into the shadows and so he kind of has these that that is that that issue being the issue being the question of an, an adult, not a child in a I higher see. state of society who seems to be in the immaturity of their faculties. On that point, it's kind of funny because you talk about his his reaction to, regarding people's children. There's that famous quote when he was in Parliament and fed up with the conservatives. He, he wrote, he said, All it, although it's not true that all conservatives are stupid people, it is true that most stupid people are conservatives. Right. <laughs> he, he had a, a, quite a number of people that he regarded as as uh, in, uh, as maybe not worthy of public admittance to the public square <laughs> on his level. Well, I mean, interestingly there, I mean, that's a, you know, uh, I think uh, in Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, you know, he opens the book with that quote and sort of, you know, so, so Mill is framed and cast immediately as, you know, the great enemy of conservatism and as being you know, the overflowing font of the absolute worst of, you know, modern liberalism. But one little thing on that, because Mill, I think in that, I think it, on that, when Mill was saying that he was referring to the conservative party. Mm -hmm. Oh so yeah. Yeah, he wasn't referring to like people who were conserv who had conservative views. He was referring to the members of the other party. So he was kind of was he was speaking in kind of like a you know a, a you know a provocative partisan fashion. I mean, Emil had. I mean, you know, I mean, he 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 kept up a you know a a, a had a deep and rich appreciation uh, for conservative intellectuals. Um, so I I you know while it was perfectly uh understandable and, and irresistible uh for someone like kirk to begin his book with that and of course that line is always going to be trotted out when people need to uh kind of you know uh, frame mill in a certain way uh the context i think forgives him a little bit <laughs> that's true i should i should have said it was in the midst of a, a the debate oh no, that, no, no worries because i mean mill you know that's i mean mill 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 the politician right mill was a staunch member of the Liberal Party. And while he, again, his intellectual life and in his own personal philosophical views, I think you can see elements of, you know, conservatism in in various ways, but uh, uh, he certainly politically, uh, you know, was, was raring for the fight. So. <laughs> well, at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with John Peter DiUlio, the author of the book, Completely Free, The Moral and Political Vision of John Stuart Mill. And now, John, can, we've we've uh, you've covered very help. Was there anything more on that topic that you wanted to add? Or I interrupt you a lot. I know, so. Oh no, it's fine. No, I just think that if I guess my my point there is that like if you know I don't think you know conserv conservatives looking at mail. I don't think it's I think it's high time. Let's say uh, for conservatives to you know 
th th there's nothing wrong philosophically with bringing Mill to the table because Mill's not a hedonist. He's not an atomistic individualist. He's not, you know, a Benthamite consequentialist. He's not kind of a, you know, radical libertarian. In fact, on all of those scores, I think he has views and has his, his philosophical output can be that a conservative can find it not only resonant, but interesting, helpful. And, and I think it, uh, the, the only real point of, you know, conflict, if you, they were going to, if a you know, conservative was going to have coffee with Mill, the point that I would uh, urge him to, you know, press Mill on is that issue of why, you know, obviously Mill wants to say, right, that like, of course, you know, uh, you know, if, if people are engaged in certain kinds of, you know, voluntary associations, friendships, families, you know, uh, churches, what what have you, that in those voluntary circumstances, uh, th those parties can, you know, if it's part of the relationship, right, those parties can more or less kind of, you know, uh, you know, interfere in various ways with the individual's activity to kind of, you know, spur them toward uh, better conduct. But why can't, you know, why can't society, why can't the law play a subsidiary role? And I think that Mill, while Mill, I'm sure, you know, could, you know, has answers and wants to argue the point, um, that's where I think that's kind of the, you know, I, I, it's not the Achilles heel, because I think Mill has strong prudential reasons uh, for resisting morals legislation. But of course, you mentioned uh, one of my old uh, teachers, uh, uh, Professor George, uh, who in his book, Making Men Moral, he has, he as well has very strong, he, he happily and eagerly concedes that there may be strong prudential reasons uh, not to engage in morals legislation. The question is why on, in terms of principle, why is it wrong in principle to consider the law or, or social pressure as being out of bounds uh, to play a subsidiary role in preventing individuals from you know, falling victim to, you know, various vices and various kinds of activity that are contrary to individual and social flourishing. And I just think Mill there, it's kind of the, you know, it's the weak hinge, you know, it's the place where, where the welding is not quite what it ought to be mm. in, his, in his philosophy. And that's, that's really where I would press Mill. But even, but once we get there, once that becomes kind of the locus of concern, I mean, we've already gone a very long way toward, I won't say rehabilitating, but you know, seeing Mill in, in a light that, you know, doesn't put him into any necessary antagonistic relationship uh, with conservatism, with conservatism writ large. Well, I think your book is very valuable. And that's really one of the reasons you wrote it was to have all of these different camps and factions and schools of thought as discover him anew. And you, and you, and you say very, very helpfully to the reader that I just wasn't satisfied with with any of these critiques, and I wanted to and um, summarize, encapsulate, and, and bring in a new a new view. And I'd like to ask now that we've dealt with the conservatives. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but there was an interesting uh, news story about Nadine Strossen, the former head of the ACLU. She had a piece in the New York Times in the summer, I believe, and she said she's 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 shown in the picture wearing with a red mega style hat that says make js mill great again Is, <laughs> would, would you buy one? Oh, oh certainly no i think i mean i think mill you know here's what i'd say like uh, i've been asked you know i i won't i won't ask you to ask me but i've been asked you know you know many times 
you know, I, I think about this often too, like, you know, what am I, you know, liberal, conservative, what have you. And I often have, you know, I, I feel like I'm liberal, liberal one day, conservative the next, and uh, maybe that means I'm something of a moderate. But I oftentimes think about that question in terms of like, if I wanted to, you know, who would I want if I wanted to talk about the issues and problems and questions we're facing as a society, and I wanted to get the take of, you know, the great philosophers of the past, you know, who would I desperately want at the table? And I mean, like Mill is one of the first people that comes to mind because mm -hmm. I think he and he in a very interesting. I mean, not only was he just such a brilliant, capacious, nuanced uh, uh, person and thinker, but he also, as I was alluding to before, really in a very fascinating way to me, uh, bridges the gap between what, again, Isaiah Berlin referred to as the central tradition of Western thought about your political society existing for the sake of individual and social flourishing, uh, ultimately, and thus primarily, and a kind of, you know, uh, the kind of the modern and contemporary liberalism that we're familiar with, with, which is supposed to be neutral with respect to the good, you know, and Mill wants to argue that, you know, that you, you can have a very rich, thick, strong liberalism and that is built entirely out of that central tradition and and from that point of view. And so it, there's an interesting kind of, you know, one foot being on either side of this, this of, of this kind of thick line in the ground uh, that makes Mill such a compelling figure for me. Well, well, at the end of the book, you argue that that he's a he's a, 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 a humane moderate. And I just wonder, in terms of the kind of aggressive progressivism these days, where Mill's terminology is liberty and uh, freedom, whereas the progressives tend to say equity and justice, well, although, although Mill discusses justice too, but how, do, do progressives even address him or do they know of him? I, I mean, they don't they don't really engage with him. And they, in fact, they might just regard him, oh, he's just another dead white male and and. and and, and also one more quick, one more question in terms of he's kind of a he's 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 a classical liberalist liberal in a way that maybe Salman Rushdie would be his modern analog or or who would who who do you think of now as being Millite on the public's on the mm. public's, public's stage? Yeah, well, I, I think the the first to the first question about uh, Mill vis-a-vis -vis kind of the the capital L left. I mean, I, I think that the the left and 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 progressives in general you know uh, you know I, I don't i don't necessarily you know see them engaging you know seriously with mill but mm. in a sense like there's just a different story there there's a different narrative they have different you know intellectual uh, influences they're rooted in a different tradition right so the, the story i tell in this book is like you know you ha you have to follow along not follow not follow me not, not understand what i'm saying but like you have to be willing to see this story unfold and follow mill's train of thought and logic and find it you know at least find it plausible if not compelling and 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 it, and it, you know from the you know from looking at you know what do individuals as individuals you know desire in order to make them happy you know mill plants that seed and it grows into this you know classical liberal uh you know republican uh, vision of of individual and social flourishing, and so that's a that's a whole story, that's a whole narrative that you know uh, is you know if you start from different 
premises if you if you have a different kind of once upon a time then you know the the story unfolds very differently um i mean you know for, for mill right it's it's everything begins you know i think uh richard reeves uh in his book his biography of mill helpfully says that i believe it was reeves who said that mill is a a liberal a democrat and a socialist in that order now socialist does not mean for mill you know, kind of, uh, you know, state, kind of the state socialism that we uh, typically think of today. He was more uh, talking about uh, limitations or ways of curbing uh, the sort of, you know, laissez-faire uh, capitalism uh, that was, you know, prevalent in the 19th century, which inspired, obviously, a lot of the more, you know, radical socialist writings. But for Mill, everything begins, it has to, you know, come from liberty, affirm liberty, nothing that violates individual freedom, um, is acceptable uh, freedom in the sense of non-domination that you know kind of a zero tolerant a zero tolerance po uh, policy for arbitrary power that you know Mill would rather you know Mill would rather see the world burn than <laughs> than give that up and nothing nothing ultimately good nothing ultimately and truly and sustainably and enduringly good can come from any other it, without respecting uh, liberal justice and individual freedom. That those those two values uh, sit at the core, and even if they even if they seem to pose roadblocks or inconveniences uh, to making you know social political progress across certain dimensions, uh, the inconvenience or roadblock they pose is only apparent. That that nothing good truly can come uh, with with no, nothing good can truly or enduringly result uh, that that does not uh, respect or originate in. Uh, individual liberty and uh, personal freedom. Those things have to be respected and sacrosanct if we're going to make any kind of true progress. Well, you, you make the uh, you make the point in the book that one of the most fascinating, and I, I wish I did let, let left more time to go through all of them, but you talk in the book about um, his concept of domination and uh, just read read some of what, what you had as as demoralization, domination as demoralization, as diminution, diminution, as enervation, as infantilization, as trivialization, as trivialization, as uncertainty. And I wonder if you could pick out whichever one of those you think were really key, because it was a fascinating section of your book. And, mm -hmm. and uh, because I hadn't thought about he, he, so it's as you say, it's very rich and nuanced. And are those are those his terms or again, are those are those your terms? Um, I mean, these, I, I kind of slapped these labels on. So I was, what I was doing in this section, I think kind of the, the context here is that, so I, I come at the end of, uh, in chapter four, I make an argument that, you know, while Mill obviously, you know, understood individual liberty uh, to be, you know, kind of how we classically, what we classically understand it to be as kind of, you know, the freedom of the individual from interference and had various reasons for valuing it and even, uh, protecting it, you know, uh, that ultimately his kind of his richest, deepest concept of freedom was what we might call non-domination, which I take this from another one of my uh, uh, teachers and mentors, uh, Philip Pettit, uh, where uh, liberty is not in that in those terms understood as mere, you know, freedom from interference, it's freedom from arbitrary power. Mm. Right? So it's freedom from from uh, being in a state or condition where some one, some institution, some, you know, society, what have you, uh, can interfere with you at will and with impunity across a certain range of interests. So kind of the, 
you know, kind of the model of that would be kind of be, you know, a master slave relationship, uh, where even if the, the, even if the, uh, you know, the dominus or the despot, um, who holds the arbitrary power over you is not interfering with you, even if they're benevolent, let's even say, uh, they still violate your freedom insofar as they wield arbitrary power over you and interferences and on a freedom of non-domination understanding, uh, interferences that properly are controlled by and track the general interests don't violate freedom because they they don't instantiate arbitrary power. So what I'm doing in this section is that, you know, the question then becomes why value non-domination? If you have a benevolent despot who gives you all the free reign you could possibly want to have, you know, why care if they're you know, a dominus or a despot who holds arbitrary power who could interfere with you if they so chose as long as they don't. Um, and of course, the, you know, classic traditional answers to that is on the one hand, well, you know, there's, if you're dominated, you're not secure, your liberty is at risk of, you know, arbitrary uh, interference. And on the other hand, we might uh, criticize dominate, we might take issue with domination, because it is a kind of status deprivation, that's just a you know, it's 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 not to be accepted to uh, be in the condition of a of of a, of a dominated party. That is that it's it's undignified, what have you. Uh, that that uh, to be to be in that kind of condition that is is for a non-axial kind of you know uh, reason uh, to be objected to. What Mill does interestingly, I think, throughout his corpus, and this is kind of the main archaeological aspect of <laughs> of of my of my interpretation where I kind of went through and had to like collect and collate various uh, reasons Mill has for objecting to domination. Uh, what he gives are reasons we ought to take, you know, reasons for valuing non-domination and taking issue with domination that are kind of, they're ends based in the sense that, that where we, where Mill explains in various ways why domination is contrary to individual happiness, but they cannot be reduced to interference. There are reasons for, there are reasons that domination conflicts with, violates, undermines the happiness of the individual that doesn't have anything to do with the tendency of the, of the dominus or despot to interfere with the individual. So for, for example, so for example, to get to your, <laughs> get to your, your, your question, uh, so, for example, something like uh, you know, domination is diminution, uh, where the where the despot or the dominus, if they hold, if if they have a kind of power over you, a kind of responsibility uh, for conducting or controlling or regulating or governing uh, a certain aspect of your life. Um, that they have a kind of, you know, if all the sovereign power is, you know, is vested in a, you know, a, 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 a monarch or a dictator or what have you, and you don't have any kind of, say, you know, political uh, sway or control, um, that basically takes an entire arena of human activity where the individual could develop could cultivate, could exercise their higher faculties in accordance with the the higher pleasures of that particular uh, arena, and thus achieve, and thus and thus you know cultivate and develop their nature in a new and different and direction, and thus kind of augment their happiness, the, the, the their their flourishing, you know, kind of the you know the, the it's you know those branches on that those branches on the tree of happiness can thus you know kind of grow out and uh, you know grow leaves and flourish. Well, you know. If if a despot you know say holds all political control and authority, well those branches off the tree of happiness are snapped off. You know if it it, it diminishes the extent to which one can uh, develop one's uh, 
nature, it diminishes the extent to which one can exercise their higher faculties and thus diminishes, you know, kind of ultimately what they can be as a human being. Mm. Um, so that's, that's like one area where it's not that the despot is going to interfere with you in any particularly objectionable way. It's simply the fact that what you could as an individual uh, partake in and have responsibility for and develop yourself in accordance with um, is taken out of your sphere of influence. And thus you are to that extent uh, diminished in your flourishing. Well, I just want to say, as I read the book, that when he took an, an extensive discussion of his views on um, auto personal autonomy and freedom from arbitrary power, reading it in the middle of a pandemic after we've seen a, a lot of um, well-meant, but clear, clearly, in some cases, excessive uses of arbitrary power that didn't even make sense scientifically. I, I don't want to get too political, but it just seems as though people could read could read Mill and talk about, maybe we need to rethink the use of arbitrary power in emergency situations. And I think that, can you talk about, about his value in that, that it makes us, what are, what are we owed as citizens? And what is our, as you say, at one point, Mill would say, well, that's, that's your own fault that you're not exercising your autonomy and yet you have to be a responsible citizen and care for others as and so forth and so on. So there, he seems like the ideal thinker for such a comp, so many complex debates about public health and individual sovereignty and free, free religious liberty, which you quote Robert George as saying he simply wasn't very interested in, even in spite of the fact that he was a victim of a lack of it, but he just wasn't, that was not something that, that really buzzed him particularly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he does refer to just a, you know, just a, uh, you know, uh, go off on that point for a second. He does refer, I mean, he he refers to religious liberty and on liberty. I mean, he talks about how religious liberty is the one area where where people have uh, hitherto defended it on grounds of principle. Um, he talks about, you know, later in the book about uh, the importance of allowing uh, for kind of religious education. So it, it was there, it was in the background, but he didn't see it as kind of like distinctively um, important, let's say, from other kinds of liberties. But um, to get to your point about uh, the pandemic and uh, COVID, um, I, I think reading Mill, if you know someone who takes Mill seriously, who is very invested in Mill's thought and thinks that he pr presents a persuasive uh, vision of uh, of the individual and society and the two in concert, um, I think there are a few reasons why one and such why such a person could be uh concerned with or critical of I me mean, again i'm you know absolutely no i'm a citizen observer of this as anyone else is so i'm certainly no expert but just in my own observations uh, a few reasons why someone could be concerned um i think first of all uh in the in the public discussion about you know what to do about this as the pandemic was just getting underway um there i don't think mill would be sufficiently satisfied with the extent to which individuals kind of coveted their their liberty, their true liberty. I mean, not, you know, obviously there's the, you know, there's the kind of, I mean, Mill's not a libertarian, I don't think. So there's obvious, there was obviously that uh, aspect of the conversation, but uh, the extent to which th there wasn't a sense that liberty is something more than a kind of nice thing to have. It's a, you know, it's a, you know, it, it, it's good while it, it, it's good while it lasts. It's good to have it. It's a nice privilege. Um, it's, you know, it, but it's kind of, it's, it can be traded off rather easily against other concerns. Whereas, you know, Mill really wants to impress upon us the absolute essential, vital, critical importance 
of individual liberty and maintaining an atmosphere of freedom and you know and a and a, a strong aversion to and suspicion of kind of sweeping uh limitations on individual freedom and spontaneity and activity that that there ought to be a a a real you know while certainly mill is the first to uh confess and even you know uh, uh trumpet that there are things we owe to society there are plenty of things we owe to society he's not a libertarian he believes that society has the has the authority and it's you know, to even compel certain things from us. He was um, even he even voted in Parliament for capital punishment, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. And he yeah. even said he even said this may surprise people, but I'm voting this way. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and he you know, and on liberty itself, he goes through various kind of positive interferences that the government can engage in, uh, where the individual may exercise their liberty in that direction anyway, but the government can compel it for the sake of the social good. Um, at the same time, that's always on the other side of the ledger. What that's being compared to is a is a is a real thick, strong uh, uh, sense of just how vital and essential individual liberty is, and that it cannot be traded off against kind of uh, social concerns in a uh, in kind of a in kind of a, an easy fashion. Um, so I think there was a, I think that's the first thing that Mill would say that you know we. You know, just despite you know the uh, you know even despite the, the you know the risks and threats you know posed by uh, a burgeoning pandemic, that our unwillingness and and the you know kind of the the uh, you know, we 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 ought to, we ought to feel much more you know uh, we ought, we ought to feel much more uh, uncomfortable than perhaps we do about uh, about about sacrificing our 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 individual liberty. I think the second thing. On that point, is that I think Mill would be concerned, and Mill would emphasize that whenever you're facing a question of you know individual liberty versus some the promotion or achievement of some social good or the avoidance of some social harm, like you're not facing it de novo. Like I think that is important for Mill that you know it, it's not that like every time we are facing a question, okay, should we have individual liberty or certain degrees of interference and social control in this situation, we're not choosing in that particular case for that particular case uh, with no reference to what comes before or after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only is, you know, liberty kind of the kind of the first principle of justice, and thus we need to have a kind of thick attachment to it. Um, it also is the case that that you cannot interfere for Mill without in, in, without implicitly or even explicitly you know legislating implying a rule of interference right like it's not like you know if you're going to interfere with individual liberty there has to be an explanation as to why you're interfering Mm. and that explanation becomes a rule or principle that has applications to circumstances um, outside of that particular scenario and the question mill would have us ask is even if in this particular case, we think it's the case that uh, you know, a certain degree of social control or interference could redound to the public good in this particular instance, um, do we want to set a precedent? You know, what, what rule are we implying here? And do we, want to, do we want to concede that power to the powers that be or, or despite the kind of the risks and dangers we have to face uh, if we don't, uh, act in a certain way. Um, is it more dangerous 
in a, in a, taking a larger view of the situation, is it more dangerous uh, to set a kind of rule, to set a precedent whereby a certain rule of interference uh, can be invoked in a vast array of circumstances, perhaps even on an arbitrary basis, and that may not even have limitations, and that is going to be uh, uh, used and conducted by prejudiced, corruptible, fallible, you know, ego-driven individuals who, you know, especially, you know, who are who not because they're particularly horrible, but because they're human beings are going to exhibit, you know, are going en masse to exhibit all the worst traits of human beings. Um, and I think the third thing that he'd take, he'd be concerned with would be, the, I think the public discourse around the issue uh, for, a, for someone who takes Mill seriously uh, was problematic. Um, like, you know, obviously when it comes to issues of, you know, math and science, there's kind of a, 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 you know, that's not as concerning for Mill because there are kind of definite agreed upon uh, uh, ways of, of coming to kind of answers and consensus that are kind of, you know, demonstrable, empirically verifiable, falsifiable, what have you. Hmm. Um, and so in a sense, like, you know, I don't think Mill would take any issue with the fact that the scientific community uh, as a whole um, you know, kind of, you know, not coercively, but, but, you know, just kind of pushes to them would, 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 would naturally kind of ignore and push to the margins, uh, anyone who wants to make the argument that smoking is not only not unhealthy, but the best thing you can do. You know, <laughs> anyone who says that like is, is going, I think there's a, there'd be a natural organic tendency to kind of marginalize, uh, that voice because the scientific consensus around that issue is has been has been going on you know for has been building and and coalescing for a long time it's mature it's rich it's thick it's deep it's it, it, whereas the scientific you know, you know the, the, the the questions and concerns around covid and around the pandemic uh you know were fresh mm -hmm. were new uh there wasn't there wasn't and it isn't at least as far as i can tell uh, any kind of scientific consensus about what we were facing, what the optimal ways were of dealing with it. And to a large, I mean, is it, there are, I think re a reasonable case can be made and has been made, right? Perhaps wrongly, perhaps, you know, for bad reason, for bad motives, but a reasonable case can be made and has been made that the response to the pandemic was catastrophic mm -hmm. and was and was in many ways a failure and in many ways made the problem worse, not better. And that it didn't actually, you know, there's that, it, it, you know, it didn't actually save uh, the people it was intending to save. In fact, it may have, you know, that it, that the effect of, you know, the lockdowns and masking and everything else. Yeah. Masking of a three-year-old in particular. Is... Right, you know, weren't exactly all that effective. And of course the, op you know, the, the, opposite side wants to say well you know they immediately character one side or the other you know mm. you know one side you know the the people who are criticizing kind of the uh you know kind of the orthodoxy are saying you know these are you know authoritarians and the other side is saying well you're just you're you know you're just callous and saying just let it rip you know through society um whereas there's a very there's a there's a uh you know, a, a, a very rich middle ground there where, pe that they, that where people have tried to plant their feet, but have had difficulty doing so uh, because of this tendency uh, to regard, you know, the scientists and experts um, in charge as having, a, as, treating them as if 
they are representing a scientific consensus that has been coalescing for decades and is mature and uh, and and to and to that extent uh, they can properly marginalize uh, dissenting voices. I mean, which is just not the case. Now, if the you know, argument, I mean, and it makes no sense to shut down speech in that regard when the issue is so eminently contested and contestable. Mm. I mean, so I mean, I think Mill would would see the uh the way the, the the public debate surrounding what we were dealing with and how to respond to it the way that unfolded was to was deeply problematic i think for anyone who takes you know chapter two of on liberty uh seriously and i think if 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 it is the case that the you know that the the response to the pandemic was in many ways ineffectual counterproductive and had a vast array of perverse and unintended consequences i mean i think mill would you know say yeah told you so Mm. Well, well, John, thank you. I've taken up a lot of your time. And I'd like to ask you now, this is the traditional final question on the New Books Network. And that is, what are you working on now? Oh, yes. Well, I actually, I am am currently uh, working on a a new project. Uh, Hopefully, it'll be a book. Um, I hope so. We like that at the New Books Network. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, I, you, you never want to count, you know, uh, count chickens or pages before, <laughs> before before they hatch or are written. Um, but I'm uh, working on a, a new project on the uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, who was a uh, 20th century uh, analytic philosopher. Uh, Good for philosopher, you. A philosopher of action, uh, a, a project, you know, a, a kind of a she is largely credited with kind of rediscovering uh, virtue ethics um, in moral theory. And I'm, it's a project focused on her action theory as it, as largely as it relates to the question of uh, human freedom or free will. So sticking, sticking with the uh, topic of freedom, but kicking it up to a more, one might say, uh, metaphysical level. Well, that's wonderful. I think that American audiences need to know about her because she's she's well known in Britain, but I think less so here. So so that would be wonderful. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, John Peter DiUlio, author of Completely Free, The Moral and Political Vision of John Stuart Mill. And thank you, listeners. And I recommend this book. I read every word. It's excellent and very timely. He makes John Stuart Mill not only a Victorian, but a man of our time and all time. It was really very, very good reading. So thanks, John. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.